welcome to the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kionkui, and I am a practicing cardiothoracic surgeon who specializes in the treatment of atrial fibrillation. Throughout my career, I've been blessed to work side by side with some of the brightest minds in atrial fibrillation treatment, diagnosis, and prevention. And the whole purpose of this podcast is to share those insights with you by giving you a front row seat to intimate conversations with AFib experts from around the world. So turn up the volume, sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversations. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to another episode. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Whitney Fu from the University of Michigan. We discuss her paper entitled Postoperative Atrial Fibrillation in Mitral Valve Surgery is Not Benign. We discuss the incidence of post-op AFib in the isolated mitral valve population and its association with permanent atrial fibrillation as well as neurologic events and mortality. We also talk about some of the prophylactic measures that surgeons may be able to take, including operative procedures, management of the left atrial appendage, prophylactic ablations, as well as the incision in the left pericardium to possibly reduce the risk of postoperative atrial fibrillation. Had a really good time speaking with Dr. Fu about this paper. I think it's a really hot topic in our space of cardiac surgery right now. So I hope you enjoy this episode. All right, well, welcome back everyone to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. This is your host, Dr. Armin Kionkui. Today I'm here with Dr. Whitney Fu from the University of Michigan. Whitney, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So Whitney, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Maybe uh, where are you from, where you've done your training and what you're doing in Ann Arbor right now? Sure. Yeah. Uh, I am from uh, California originally, but I'm currently a general surgery resident uh, in my fifth year um, at the University of Michigan. Um, We do two uh, research years after our first three clinical years. So I'm currently in my second research year. uh, and interested in going into cardiac surgery. Very cool. It sounds like we had very similar paths. I actually did the exact same thing. So I was, uh, three years clinical two years in the lab. Sounds like we had the same setup NIH T32 grant funding your time there. Right. Yep. And then, and then you have two more years and then you're hoping to go into cardiac. That's fantastic. So was, is there anything that kind of sparked your interest in cardiac? I mean, you're only a few years into your training now. Was it a, was it an operation that you got to see? Was it a personal thing? If that's not too much to ask, but what kind of brought you into the cardiac Um, realm? Yeah. So when I was, uh, in college, I did a couple of months abroad in Mongolia, actually, um, kind of working and shadowing in a state hospital there. Um, And I remember that one of the things uh, that really stuck in my mind that I got to see um, was a cardiac operation on a teenager um, for rheumatic disease. Um, And this was done, there was a team um, from Texas there, an academic team kind of doing a capacity building, you know, teaching situation. And so, I had known that I wanted to go into medical school uh, when I was there, but that was actually my first experience stepping into an operating room was actually in uh, in Ulaanbaatar, the capital of Mongolia. Wow. Um, yeah. So that I think was the first, you know, 
time that I considered the option, just being in the operating room and then also, you know, actually seeing a, a beating heart and then, you know, seeing all of the um, the teamwork that went into having, you know, between the surgeon and the anesthesiologist, the perfusionist, I think, you know, that was just a really kind of wild experience for me. Um and then uh, in medical school, you know, just with the way that our rotations went, I had no exposure whatsoever to either cardiac or thoracic. It just wasn't one of the rotations that we were um, able to do. Um, and so that had kind of slipped a little bit from my mind um, until I got to residency. And so for us in our PGY3 year, we do a month uh, each on thoracic and cardiac. And, uh, and so being on that cardiac month really, uh, kind of reawakened my interest, both, um, being in the operating room, uh, and also, you know, kind of working with our, uh, CBICU, just kind of, you know, reimmersing myself in all of the really interesting physiology. Um, I think that goes along with that. Um, and I think, you know, kind of the, the capstone, um, experience was just, uh, with, uh, Dr. Bowling in the operating room, getting to, to place, um, the, some of the stitches on the tricuspid anulopastate ring was just, you know, I think that that really did it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Oh, that's so funny. We have such similar stories. I, um, I went into medical school thinking I was going to be a, 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 a pediatrician actually. And then I kind of, you know, crawled my way through medical school. And then at the very end, I decided that maybe I wanted to be a pediatric surgeon. So then I went into general surgery training. And then during general surgery, um, one of my, it was, I think it was very similar, may have been my intern year or my second year. One of the staff cardiac surgeons actually let me place a stitch on the right atrium and I was hooked. I was like, this is it. Like, there's no way I'm going back from this. Like I just got to operate on the heart. Um, yeah. And so I kind of blossomed late, if you will. Also, I wasn't one of those that kind of came out of junior high thinking I was going to be a, a cardiac surgeon. So, uh, very cool. Very cool. Well, it's super exciting. Um, you have some really powerhouse people there at Michigan. You just mentioned one, Dr. Bowling, you have Dr. Gaurav Alawadi, who was, who yep. was at, um, uh, who was at, uh, UVA when I was there as well. Um, you know, the list goes on and on, um, yeah, so absolutely. was it, was it the mitral space that kind of, uh, interested you with respect to the paper that we're going to talk about, or was it the post-op AFib space or was it kind of a combination of both? Uh, it was mainly the mitral space. I think, especially, you know, with those surgeons that you mentioned, we have a really robust, uh, you know, kind of mitral research group. Um, and so, uh, so that was just, you know, the initial angle that I had taken, especially, you know, as you say, coming in, uh, I don't know if, you know, late, but a little bit later, you know, into, into, you know, my interest in cardiac surgery was just really trying to, um, you know, kind of build a, a foundation and take advantage of these amazing, you know, people that we had and, and kind of build on, on what they had. So, um, so yeah, came into it from, from the mitral space and then got into this topic of post-op AFib. Yeah. So let's talk about this. So this was a, a paper that you presented at the mitral conclave uh, of May of 2023, and it's in press right now in uh, JTCVS. Yep. And so for the listener, it's entitled post-operative atrial fibrillation in mitral valve surgery is not benign. And so again, um, we're talking about mitral valve surgery. We're talking about post-op AF. It's a really hot topic right now, post-op AF. 
So it was really nice to see this uh, in press. So uh, Whitney, I'm going to give the floor over to you. And if maybe you want to just kind of talk about uh, what kind of started this idea of building this paper, and then if you can just slowly kind of methodically take us through your paper and highlight some of the points, and we'll just kind of go back and forth. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, so, you know, what what kind of sparked the interest and, um, you know, Dr. Bowling gave me permission to use this joke, but, you know, he says uh, that, <laughs> you know, he's basically a million years old, his words, not mine. And, uh, you know, and his, um, you know, what he remembers doing for, for post-op AFib and sort of what he remembers the outcomes being, uh, you know, are basically the same, he says, when he was in training uh, versus now, you know, and so... Um, you know, I think our our understanding of it and our um, our knowledge on how to to manage it and you know, kind of what it all means for outcomes has stayed uh, has stayed pretty stagnant. Um, we've we've not really made um, you know significant progress into the treatment and management of post op AFib, um, and so that's you know kind of where we uh, where we started. Um, and so you know, post op AFib very common complication can occur you know in up to fifty percent um, of patients after cardiac surgery, um, and you know again minimal improvement over the years, and still um, you know looking in the literature, not a whole lot in terms of uh, a consensus or any sort of society guidelines um, in terms of. Uh, you know the the surveillance after the uh, the anticoagulation, you know methods after, um, and so just still a lot of uncertainty. Um, and I think uh, you know we're there's also this um, a little bit of this historic um, you know belief or assumption that you know post op AFib is sort of this self limiting um, you know uh, sort of quote unquote benign, you know, complication that, um, you know, that doesn't necessarily have any, um, you know, bearing on, on long-term, you know, long-term outcomes. It was just something that happened kind of due to that, you know, operative insult and then kind of, you know, resolved itself. Um, and so there is some more recent, you know, work around this, like you said, it's kind of a hot topic right now. And so, um, we wanted to add our, work to that that emerging body. Um, and so our specific objective was to look at the effect of post-op AFib on uh, a couple primary outcomes, mainly the, the development of permanent AFib, the incidence of subsequent neurologic events, uh, and the effect of post-op AFib on, uh, on long-term survival. Um, so kind of just going, uh, into some definitions, um, and, uh, and, um, inclusion and exclusion criteria, um, for the purposes of our study, we, uh, basically use the STS, you know, definition, which is to say, uh, uh, post-op AFib was AFib occurring within 30 days of the operation and permanent AFib, um, was the, the term that we used for basically, uh, new or recurrent AFib occurring, you know, after 30 days post-op. Um, and then, so for this study, our primary patient population was, um, patients who were undergoing isolated mitral valve surgery. Um, so including, you know, not 
not tricuspid valve surgery, which, you know, sometimes is included in that definition. Um, so isolated mitral valve surgery patients with no known prior history of AFib or other arrhythmias. Um, and uh, exclusion criteria, just, um, you know, kind of standard things, incomplete follow-up. Um, we did importantly exclude uh, perioperative strokes. So any stroke that occurred within 72 hours. Um, and the rationale behind that just being that, you know, I think the mechanism of perioperative strokes within, you know, that early time frame is likely very different um, than, you know, the kind of later strokes that do to, you know, um, thromboembolic events related to AFib. Um, and then we also excluded uh, strokes that were um, uh, based on, on chart review uh, deemed to be hemorrhagic strokes or due to, you know, septic emboli. So again, um, kind of a, a um, pathophysiologically different entity uh, than what we were looking at. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and one thing that kind of caught my eye too is, um, there is an institutional protocol for amiodarone for post-op AFib prophylaxis. So do you want to just talk about that a little bit also? Yeah, sure. So, um, so our protocol is to do, uh, 600 milligrams of PO amiodarone, uh, TID for two days, starting on post-op day one. Um, and then 200 milligrams PO of amiodarone twice a day for 30 days following that. So they're discharged on that and they'll continue. Um, and so this is done in a, um, in most patients, except for those with, uh, you know, primary contraindications, mainly bradycardia or, you know, a known previous allergic reaction or, um, you know, sort of, uh, obvious adverse reactions such as pulmonary toxicity. Um, and this, uh, has been kind of pulled, um, from, it mainly pulled from, uh, a meta-analysis by, uh, by Bagshaw and, uh, his group. And they had looked at, um, 19 different, uh, randomized controlled trials looking at perioperative amiodarone, uh, for post-op AFib prophylaxis. Um, there was a lot of heterogeneity in regards to kind of when the amio was given dosage route, you know, kind of specifics of the regimen. Um, but the pooled results suggested that uh, that amio was associated with reduced incidence of post-op AFib stroke and, and decreased length of stay. So yeah, that, kind of yeah it's really you. interesting, you know, the whole prophylactic amiodarone kind of space, because obviously if it had been working really well for a long time, we wouldn't be talking about post-op right. AFib. So I think a lot of us for a while now have been kind of scratching our heads about what to do with these amio protocols. Like you said, there are randomized control studies that suggest that, you know, using perioperative amiodarone does reduce your risk of post-op AFib, but it's just not enough. And we know it's quite a toxic drug. You know, many patients see the the contraindications or the side effect profile from the pharmacy. And they call me and they're like, literally, I mean, I'm not taking this medication. Like, I don't care yeah. how long you want me to be on it. I'm not taking it. So no, really interesting. So, all right, cool. So we've gone through a lot of the, 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 uh, criteria that I definitely wanted to touch on, like, um, the, you know, the, your stroke definitions, uh, the prophylaxis inclusion exclusion criteria, so, uh, yeah, let's move on to the results. All right. So, um, uh, 
Starting with just patient demographics, um, we ended up analyzing 922 patients in total. Um, and so this was out of um, all patients that we had pulled, you know, again, that fit those inclusion criteria between 2011 and 2022. Um, of those, uh, 88% um, was, we had an 88% repair rate. Um, and of those, that uh, had replacements, 14% of those got um, mechanical valves. And um, interestingly, this will kind of um, come in later, but there was um, no difference in uh, in pre-op uh, ejection fraction or left atrial size uh, between the, the two groups just on univariate analysis. Um, and so looking at just uh, Operative outcomes. So overall, operative mortality was one percent, and these did all occur in uh, patients in the post-op AFib group. Um, and post-op AFib patients, again by univariate analysis, had um, longer bypass time, uh, overall cross clamp time, longer ICU length of stay, and more frequent um, ICU readmissions as well. Um, otherwise, moving into um, long-term outcomes. So our overall incidence of post-op AFib was 39%. So that was 358 patients. That's pretty consistent you know, with the range of, uh, of what's been reported in the existing literature. Um, of those, um, 39, uh, I'm sorry, most of those had converted back to sinus by their 30-day follow-up at which they get, um, you know, a routine EKG. Um, 24% though did uh, develop permanent AFib in that permanent, uh, in that post-op AFib group versus 6.5% uh, in the no post-op AFib group. So, um, you know, suggested there was a much higher risk of developing permanent AF if you had post-op AF. Yeah. So let's um, talk about that a little bit because, sure. you know, for a while, again, kind of this whole conversation about post-op AF has always been, and I love your title. I absolutely love your title because, you know, you say uh, post-op AFib and mitral valve surgery is not benign. And that's been the theme. And you touched on that earlier for so long, you know, is that you know, someone has post-op AFib, whether it's after a cabbage, whether it's after an AVR, whether it's after a mitral, and we kind of get lulled to sleep into this idea that, you know what, it just goes away. Like, don't worry about it. You know, there was a, a, a randomized control study published a while ago, maybe 10, 15 years ago that talked about, you know, what do we do stroke, you know, rhythm versus rate control for post-op AFib. And ultimately that, you know, everyone was saying, well, it doesn't really matter because, you know, in 30 days it goes away. But the reality is for most people, it may not matter, but for some people it really does matter. And that's what you've nailed with what you just said right now, which was, you know, I think it's so compelling and so important for the listeners to kind of get hold of this, which is there is a real incidence of long-term AFib or persistent AFib or permanent AFib or whatever term you want to use in patients who develop post-op AFib. Yeah, maybe it's not most. It's definitely not most, right? But in the 39% of patients who develop post-op AFib, which is already a big number, right? Almost 40% of patients are developing post-op AFib who have mitral valve surgery. 28% of those patients developed permanent AFib. That was almost four times the non-post-op AFib rate. Right. So I just, I really want to drive that home because I don't want people to, to see post-op AFib clinically and say, hey, it doesn't matter. 
let's just give them some amio and walk away. No, almost a third of these patients have permanent AFib in your study, in your mitral valve study. And we'll talk about kind of some of the patient characteristics that may have kind of leaned or, or, um, I guess, enhanced that number a little bit. But um, yeah, it's really, it's really, it was so interesting to see that number pop out of your paper that 28% of patients who have post-op AF go on to develop permanent AF as defined by AFib after the 30-day period. Yep, that's absolutely the, you know, kind of the the central message of our paper that we're really trying to, to hammer home. All right. So then let's get into the neurologic event. So you were, I know you were just about to, to, to start, to start talking about that. So sorry, I interrupted you, but yeah, let's talk about those neurologic events. Yeah. And so, you know, I think everybody knows and nobody will debate, um, you know, that AFib increases your risk of, of neurologic events. And, um, you know, that is exactly, uh, exactly what we saw. So, um, in the post-op AFib group, um, the, rate of stroke or TIA was um, 4.8% versus 2% in uh, the no post-op AFib group. And and this was a um, a statistically significant difference uh, on univariate analysis. Right. So more than doubled, more than doubled. So if you have post-op AFib, you're your uh, incidence of stroke, as again, defined by you, non-hemorrhagic out of the 72-hour window was 4.8%. 5% of patients with post-op AFib are having a neurologic event after the first three days. Crazy, crazy. Yep. Okay, Absolutely. keep going. Um, okay. And so, of course, you know, kind of the the obvious questions, um, you know, the, the follow-up questions are, okay, well, you know, there's a lot of factors that go into you know, um, whether or not a patient might develop post-op AFib, uh, whether or not a patient might develop permanent AFib. And so, um, so our next, uh, step was to do, um, you know, logistic regression to try and account for these multiple covariates. Um, and so, you know, the, the covariates we're looking at again are, are pulled out of existing literature and, you know, are things that we, that we know, including, um, you know, sex, whether or not there was a, a valve replacement versus repair, um, bypass time, cross-claim time, you know, uh, uh, CHF, you know, uh, severity, things like that. Um, and so in our model, after adjusting for, uh, for those covariates, um, at least in terms of risk factors for, uh, for post-op AFib, um, increasing age and diabetes were, uh, were risk factors, uh, for those, which again are, um, consistent with what, other studies have shown, um, whereas uh, increasing preoperative EF was associated with a very, very marginally decreased risk, um, probably not clinically significant, but, you know, kind of goes along with with our understanding. It doesn't contra- uh, contra- contradict that. Um, and then, you know, so our next thing was, okay, those are the risk factors for developing post-op AFib. Now, what are the risk factors for um, for developing permanent AFib? And so, uh, this I think is kind of the the meat of the um, of the paper was, you know, even accounting for, um, you know, for some of those those patient demographics, you know, that might be kind of unique to our patient population or, or separate between the groups, um, you know, does 
pre-op or does post-op AFib um, increase your risk of, of permanent AFib? That's, you know, kind of the big question. And so in our model, we we did see that. Um, so the, the odds ratio, um, you know, in our model for, uh, for, uh, for post-op AFib uh, increasing your risk of permanent AFib, uh, there was an odds ratio of, of 3.2. So, so that's a large, you know, kind of increase in your in your odds of of developing permanent AFib if you if you have post op AFib, um, and then uh, you know left atrial enlargement was also a risk factor, although the the effect size of that was uh, was considerably smaller. Um, and then you know, kind of the last step in in these uh, adjusted models is to look at you know does permanent AFib uh, correlate with increased risk of neurologic events, which, you know, we know, yes, it does. And, and that was also, uh, demonstrated in our, uh, in our regression models. Yeah. So, so just to summarize, so in your multivariable or multi multiple covariate analysis, you basically showed that the presence of post-op AFib tripled your likelihood of permanent AFib and that permanent AFib significantly increase your risk of neurologic events by almost four times. Correct. Wow. Wow. It's pretty profound. It is. It, there's not, <laughs> you know, it's like you think about the things that we try to account for in the operating room. We talked about earlier, you know, the kind of the perioperative, you know, bypass time and cross clamp time and those sorts of things. You know, as surgeons, we're doing our best to limit those, right? We're not saying like, hey, I'm just going to take longer on this patient because I feel like it because it's a Tuesday morning and why not? You know, we're doing everything we can. We think about these patients. We think about how to make it the most efficient, safe, effective operation. And then given all that, the I think what you're driving home is when post-op AFib presents, let's take it seriously. Let's take it very, very seriously, because obviously we've taken the operation seriously. We've done everything we can to maximize the outcome surgically. Now let's maximize the outcome from the patient perspective. Let's, if they develop post-op AFib, let's do something about it because it does lead to increased rates of permanent AFib and increased rates of neurologic events. Okay. You made some really interesting points in your discussion. I'm sorry, it looked like there's one more thing you wanted to add. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's not that's fine. The the last, you know, kind of main point in our results was um, you know, the effect of post-op AFib on long-term survival. So, you know, that's that's the other big question is okay, you know, you're telling me all of these these things, but what does that actually mean for, you know, patient survival? And so um, we did a, a time to event, you know, Kaplan-Meier survival analysis. Um, and what we did see was that there was a significant difference um, in those two curves where patients who uh, had post-op AFib had worse long-term survival uh, overall than patients who did not have post-op AFib, which, you know, matches with kind of this, this um, message we're painting of, of post-op AFib not at all being benign. Um, and similarly, you know, uh, trying to adjust for, um, for different factors that might be associated with, uh, with survival. So including, you know, age, sex, you know, whether or not they got a replacement, whether or not they were discharged on oral anticoagulation, you know, all of these things in our, um, Cox model, which allows us to try and, and adjust for those, 
um, we still found post-op AFib to be associated with, uh, to have a hazard ratio that was, um, you know, associated with worse uh, long-term mortality. Yeah, that hazard ratio is 1.8, if I'm reading this correctly. I mean, it's not small, right? You're almost right. doubling someone's risk of long-term mortality. You know, and, and that's a space that we talk about a lot right now, too, which is, you know, why why do patients who have post-op AFib have increased long-term mortality? Is it stroke-related? Is it heart failure related? You know, we're not really sure. We're trying to sort that out right now with, with data. Um we probably think it's probably more related to heart failure if they survive their stroke, but obviously there are patients who are who are um, have increased mortality from stroke events alone. So very interesting. Yeah. So not only does it increase your permanent AF, increases neurologic event, but it increases your mortality. Wow. Okay. Let's talk about um, some really, I think, important points you made in your discussion. So do you want to go through that with us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you want me just to kind of go, go, you know, kind of point by point or? Well, let's, um, why don't we start off with, uh, I think we've kind of hammered home the important, you know, outcomes of the paper, but let's talk about one thing, um, with respect to the heart, which was the left atrial size. So yeah. you had mentioned earlier that left atrial size uh, in your paper was 4.5 centimeters on average between the two groups didn't play out as a factor. Do you want to just kind of comment on on what you think about that size in general, 4.5, and, and why you think it may not have uh, settled out in the analysis? Sure. Yeah. So left <laughs> atrial enlargement is a known um you know, kind of pathological change that occurs with MR, and it's a uh, it's thought to be a known risk factor for AF. Um, and there are papers out there. Um, the one that we mentioned in our uh, in our paper was one by Kernis and his colleagues. Um, they found left atrial enlargement to be independently uh, predictive of post-op AF and also subsequent mortality um, in patients, kind of same patient population as ours, patients undergoing mitral valve surgery in the absence of any sort of preoperative history of AF. Um, you know, the the cutoff that they had used in their uh, in their paper was uh, was 50 millimeters or over five centimeters. Um, and that was kind of the inflection point at which they noticed a difference, uh, started to notice a difference in their rates of permanent AF. Um, and as I had mentioned earlier, our mean uh, left atrial size was 45 millimeters or 4.5 centimeters. Um, and so, you know, our, our results, I think, don't necessarily refute the argument that left atrial size is an important prognostic factor. Um, but I think it may uh, reflect or it may kind of reflect the fact that we um, you know, try to operate or intervene uh, earlier. Um, I think we're a bit more aggressive about intervening on MR um, kind of before we see those other pathological changes of, of left atrial enlargement and, you know, others so forth. Yeah, exactly. It's not that left atrial size is not an important factor, possibly in the development of post-op AFib, as you mentioned in these other papers, it's been suggested maybe five centimeters is the cutoff. Um, it's probably lower, you know, we're not quite sure, but it's just in this specific patient population, when you're looking at mitral valve patients who, whether or not they develop post-op AFib had enlarged atria at baseline, you know, it's going to be hard to look at that in this analysis, right? If everyone has the same size left atrium, well, 
gosh, it's going to be hard to say one is a little bit different than the other. So <clears throat> what was also interesting what, that you noted in your discussion with respect to this topic is that in that Kernis paper, they showed that the prevalence of AFib at 10 years was 60% in their patients with post-op AFib. I had not seen that number before. So, you know, you had mentioned uh, 20, what, 20, almost 25% um, earlier, uh, in your cohort and they had mentioned 60%. That's, that's a pretty large number. Um, but there does seem to be some, um, you know, evidence that patients who have uh, post-op AFib develop, uh, permanent AFib and Dr. Willekes in his study, uh, from Michigan, not, not, uh, from Grand Rapids, not from the U, but he, um, in his study where they looked at prophylactic pulmonary vein isolation to, uh, to decrease the rate of post-op AFib, they found a 10% uh, rate of permanent uh, AFib in patients who developed post-op AFib. So it's somewhere in that range. You know, we're not sure. Is it 10%? Is it 30%? Is it 60%? But there are patients who are de uh, definitely developing post-op or permanent AFib after post-op AFib. Um, and that kind of takes me to this to this other idea, which is you know, you mentioned at the University of Michigan, it's not commonplace to prophylactically manage the left atrial appendage in patients who are undergoing mitral valve surgery without a prior diagnosis of AFib. Um, in light of what we're just talking about, do you want to comment on um, where you think the role of that might be in the future? Yeah. So. Um... I think management of the left atrial appendage is also, you know, kind of this topic that has really, um, you know, gotten pretty hot recently. Um, I know there was, you know, Dr. Mahaffey's um, paper that you discussed on your last episode um, and uh, and some other big papers that have come out, you know, for this um, for for this point, we had um, found, you know, in our search, there is the first uh, trial evaluating um, you know, concomitant appendage closure, regardless of, of pre-op AF status. And that's called the left atrial appendage closure by surgery trial. Um, and, you know, it was a relatively small uh, trial, but their, their late follow-up data suggests that um, appendage closure is, is safe um, and does protect against um, stroke risk um, independently of whether or not the patient had a history of atrial fibrillation. Um, you know, at our institution, um, almost, I would say three quarters of patients who do have known AFib get their appendage closed. Um, but it's really not routine practice at this point to do that for patients who don't have a history of AFib. Um, you know, I think as more data comes out, uh, like what came out for, um, that trial that I mentioned, um, that might very well start being, you know, the move. I think overall there's been good safety data, at least that shows that there's, you know, not, um, you know, doesn't appear to be significant harm or risk, uh, with, with closure. Um, and so, you know, I think with, with more data and perhaps more understanding, um, that that might end up being the move. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, it's a complex issue because like you've shown, you know, there are patients who are going to develop permanent AFib who are undergoing mitral valve surgery. So I think there's a couple things going on. One is 
and you mentioned this in your discussion, are we just not catching them before they go to surgery, right? Is there some sort of monitoring, uh, screening, if you will, that should be done for these mitral valve patients? And then two, even if you don't find it on screening, you know some percentage are going to develop AFib after surgery. And now you've already left the operating room where you haven't, you know, you've essentially lost your opportunity to treat the left atrial appendage. So then do you go ahead and do it? And, you know, and, and like you said, you know, some surgeons are doing it. Um, Dr. Chickway at Cedars published a paper last year, looking at left atrial appendage closure during mitral valve repair mm-hmm. in patients without AFib. And they showed, you know, a similar thing to that, to the trial where their hazard ratio was 0.3 in patients who had their left atrial appendage closed versus not closed when you looked at long-term neurologic events. So yes, it seemed that in patients that um, underwent prophylactic left atrial appendage closure for whatever reason, you know, how, what, for whatever reason that the surgeon chose that, maybe they um, had a large left atrium, maybe they had a prior stroke, you know, there may be multiple factors that go into why a surgeon would choose to do that prophylactically, but all that being said, when they chose to do that, because they felt maybe the patient was at higher risk compared to the patients where they didn't do it, because maybe they thought the patient was at lower risk, those patients who still had their appendage closed benefited. So right. it even outweighed kind of that treatment bias, if you will. Right. Um, and so kind of all that has gone into this uh, industry-sponsored trial from Ajacure called LEAPS right now, which is enrolling, which is left atrial appendage closure with an atrial clip in patients without pre-existing AFib who have these higher risk factors, elevated CHAS, VAS score, things like that. And, you know, it's going to be a huge trial, 6,500 patients, probably going to take somewhere between five to 10 years before we get results. But yeah, I think it's really important because we do know that there are patients at risk. And when given the opportunity, like you said, to perform something safely, that may provide some uh, outcome benefit in the future, you know, why not do that as, as surgeons? And so that's, like you said, you know, it, it is something that we're trying to sort out um, and it's very important. Yeah. You- I think your, your comment about misdiagnosing, you know, uh, or, or misdiagnosis of, of AF, uh, AF is, is pretty salient because, you know, even in our, uh, in our cohort, um, 13% of patients overall in the whole cohort um, had a history of some sort of, you know, neurologic event, whether or not it was a small stroke or a TIA or, or what have you. And so, um, you know, there are guidelines as to what is supposed to happen in terms of, you know, AFib screening after somebody presents with a stroke. But I think in many cases that may or may not happen. Um, and so, you know, the question is, you know, for these 13% of people, you know, perhaps many of them did have paroxysmal AFib or just episodes that were not, um, you know, screened for aggressively before surgery. Yeah. Do you have a sense of, is there a protocol at the U? Uh, do you, you know, like, do you know what Dr. Bowling does or Dr. Alawadi? Do you have, is, is there any of that going on or is it still kind of unknown? No, there is no, um, we don't have, you know, unless again, a patient has a known history, there really is no routine preoperative, just screening for all comers. Yeah. And we're trying to figure that out. You know, I think maybe one, 
thing maybe we can take away from this paper too is at least some thinking points as far as, okay, well, if you're taking a patient to surgery as mitral valve disease and they have an atrium of 4.5 centimeters, heck, if a third of them or 40% of them are going to develop post-op AFib and a third of them are going to develop permanent AFib, maybe those patients are worth screening. Again, we don't know. This is just a conversation where it's something that we're going to have to sort out. And then I guess the, the next question to that is, okay, well, so what? So let's say, you know, you find some people who do, some people who don't, well, what are you going to do differently in the operating room? We've already talked about the left atrial appendage. We mentioned Dr. Willekes's study talking about prophylactic ablation. You know, yeah. there's this whole conversation is, okay, well, would you prophylactically ablate patients who are at high risk for post-op AFib or permanent AFib? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I think that's, you know, kind of the big questions are like, okay, now that we've kind of shown that it's not good, <laughs> what do you do about it? Right. Um, and so, you know, I think, I think I would say probably that doing an ablation is going to be a little bit more, it's going to take a little bit more time and be a little bit more complex than just, you know, putting a clip across it. And so, there's going to be, I think, some more factors to consider, you know, in terms of surgeon comfort and, you know, kind of the center at which it's happening and, and things like that. But, um, but yeah, I mean, those I think are all, are all the questions that we're, um, you know, wanting to bring up for discussion is, you know, is kind of how far do we go? How aggressive do we be in terms, you know, should we be in terms of uh, these prophylactic, prophylactic measures? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, like I said, Dr. Willekes showed in the in the cabbage, mainly cabbage patients with some smattering of AVRs that prophylactic PVI in a high risk population definitely reduces your risk of post op AFib by almost tenfold. Um, and we showed a very similar outcome uh, again in isolated cabbage patients where we used the non atriotomy clamp. So Atricure makes an encompass clamp which. You know, which goes around the left atrium, allows you to isolate the entire posterior wall. And in a cabbage patient, that's really attractive because then you don't need to do an atriotomy, right? right? If you're trying to isolate the posterior wall, then you don't need to open the left atrium. And in our retrospective study, that was a very effective way to, again, reduce post-op AFib, went from like 40% down to 4%. So again, I think we're all in this space trying to figure this out, which is okay, if we know there are high-risk patients, what can we do beyond just our standard amiodarone protocols to um, try to limit post-op AFib? And, and maybe prophylactic um, PVI, prophylactic posterior wall isolation with or without clip, you know, again, uh, may be the answer. I, I think, you know, there, there are people who are, who are thinking about designing trials to, to address those issues. Because again, for certain patients, this is really important and can have a huge impact. Um, yeah. And you brought up this thing, you know, that most, a lot of the studies have taken place in cabbage patients, um, or, you know, other procedures. And I think, you know, this is kind of, there is, uh, kind of a, a pathophysiologic link, I think, between, uh, between mitral valve disease and, and AF, I think there's, you know, kind of intuitive reasons as to why, you know, those, those two disease processes might, might even be, you know, a little more closely linked than, than in the others. And so I think that's another, you know, in terms of deciding which patients, you know, if we're going to be more aggressive about these prophylactic procedures, you know, which ones, uh, you know, and, and 
are these um, mitral patients just, you know, inherently at more risk? Does that, you know, is that enough to to say, you know, that's a baseline level of, of higher risk that, you know, we're going to intervene on? Yeah. And, you know, I, I want to make sure I don't uh, not mention the palace study also. So uh, the study that came out of Cornell randomized control study a couple of years ago that looked at the posterior pericardotomy or the left posterior pericardotomy um, incision. And so for the listeners who aren't aware of that, that was basically an intraoperative intervention where you would open the posterior pericardium at the time of surgery uh, in order to uh, allow the drainage of posterior pericardial fluid out of the pericardium into the left pleura, with the thought being that sometimes in patients who develop post-op AFib, that a fluid can irritate the left atrium that can lead to a post-op AFib. And so by simply doing a drainage procedure that those patients would then have a decreased risk of post-op AFib. And indeed they did in a randomized, prospective randomized control study. Uh, those patients who had that incision performed, I think their post-op AFib rate was like 17%. Those who did not, it was 32%. So some, some modest reduction in post-op AFib. But I think back to your point, the reason I bring that up is because I do think there's there's kind of two different uh, populations of patients who develop post-op AFib. There's patients who, again, just simply have irritation from posterior pericardial fluid. If you drain that fluid, they don't have post-op AFib. And then there's this whole other class of patients that you just mentioned, like the mitral valve patients or the sicker patients who have atrial myopathy, enlarged atrium, longstanding hypertension, all these sorts of things that just by draining their pericardium, you're not going to reduce their post-op AFib. You need to do more. You need to address that atrial myopathy. Maybe they haven't developed the electrophysiological manifestation of it yet, as we know, AFib. But it doesn't mean their atrium's not sick, and it doesn't mean that their atrium's not prone to develop AFib, whether immediately postoperatively and then or convert into permanent AFib. So I do think there's kind of two different uh, groups of patients that we're talking about here. You know, the the healthy bicuspid patient that you're doing an AVR on, you know, you probably just do the posterior pericardium, drain their pericardial fluid. They're not going to have post-AFib. But the 70-year-old cabbage patient or the mitral valve patient with an enlarged atrium who probably has underlying atrial myopathy probably need to do more for those patients. And that's something that hopefully future trials will address. Yeah, I think that's a little bit uh, of something that I'm noticing in the literature in terms of a shift of mentality is starting to think of in some patients, um, you know, uh, post-op AFib happening uh, sort of as a result of an insult to an already vulnerable, you know, atrial substrate. And so, you know, what is it about these patients that kind of sets them up uh, to be at high risk? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the last thing you mentioned in your discussion or next to last was this idea of these trials that are looking at oral anticoagulation. So there's, you know, a trial looking at um, Xeralto versus Coumadin, and there's some other trials looking at these oral anticoagulants for post-op AFib. But my gosh, how nice would it be to just you know, avoid the post-op AFib to begin with. Like we all, yeah. as surgeons, we typically hate oral anticoagulants to begin with. They make our patients bleed. And we know that that's just not kind of a cavalier statement. We know that from the data. We know specifically that patients who have post-op AFib who are placed on oral anticoagulation have increased risk of bleeding. So 
you know, I'm happy these trials are are going on, but I think the more important question is, can we prevent post-op AFib and then avoid the need for these dangerous oral anticoagulants, antiarrhythmics? Let's keep patients off AMEO. Let's keep patients off Eliquis and Xeralto and Prodaxa and Coumadin. Let's just avoid the entire issue. And if there's some intraoperative intervention that we can do to prevent that, all the better. Right. Well, gosh, I love this paper. I, I so appreciate that um, your team got together to present it and then to publish it. I applaud you for doing this as a general surgery resident. That's freaking amazing. Um, I can't wait to see what else uh, you put together. And I really look forward to um, what develops in this space. And I can't thank you enough for, for coming on this episode. No, thank you so much for for having me. This was uh, this was really fun. All right. Any last thoughts you want to leave the listeners uh, with before we hang up? Uh, no, I think uh, I think that's it. I think we covered pretty much everything. All right, Dr. Whitney Fu from the University of Michigan. Thank you so much for your time today. Have a great rest of the day. Thank you. You too. All right. All right. Well, thanks again for listening to another episode of the All Things AFib podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can catch more content at our website, allthingsafib.com, and check out our Twitter feed, at allthingsafib. So thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay regular, my friends. And now time for the obligatory disclaimer. All content on allthingsafib.com, including podcasts and blog conversations, are meant for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical care and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. If you have a medical condition, you should seek out a medical professional for consultation. Any use of information from allthingsafib.com or its associated content is at the user's own risk.